This evening, it's a privilege for me to be here. It was a good day, a beautiful day today. Spent some time outside just enjoying what spring looks like again in this part of the world. We talked last night about the fatherhood of God and the, the miracle of being called his children. And all the things that God has done, that's one of the greatest things, I believe, that he invites us to know him that way and that perspective and that relationship. And after the message, somebody told me that I did a very incomplete job of describing God, and I'm totally in agreement with that. I don't think we could get that done very easily, and uh, but I at least hope you thought about him today, and I hope that we reflected and meditated on where God is in our life and where we are in relation to him. I want to make this emphasis here tonight, that any time a relationship happens between God and a person, it's because God takes the initiative to do it. Uh, in ourselves, God is unapproachable. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.16, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who no man hath seen nor can see. And if God exists in this realm of, of eternity and he is a holy God, an all-consuming God, and he placed man inside this little bubble of material universe, and that's where we are, for a man to try to find God like that is worse than the blind man and the elephant. It's more like blind men trying to find the sun. 
for us as humans in our own strength to try to understand and know God is like, is like trying to walk into the sun to study it, to understand it better. You wouldn't do that. Job felt this way. Job said in Job 23, verse 3, Oh, that I, might know where I, might, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even come even to his seat. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him, he hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him, but he knoweth the way that I take. Now Job is saying this, if God exists, where is he? I see his work, I see his fingerprints, I see what he does, but I can't, I can't see him. Uh, he knows me and understands me, but I can't understand him. Now if that was the end of the story, it would be a very frustrating and perplexing story. But the beautiful thing about this picture is 2,000 years ago, a man walked the earth and he said, I and my father are one. And he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. And he says in Luke 10, 22, all things are delivered to me of my father and no man knoweth who the son is but the father and who the father is but the son and to whom the son will reveal him. That's why Jesus is our only hope of ever possibly knowing God and coming close to God because he's the only mediator that exists between him and us. And that's why it's so important if God knocks and if God speaks to us and asks for a relationship with us, it's a very sobering opportunity because we face, we're faced with a choice there. I can either open the door and enjoy a relationship with the creator of the universe or I can lock myself into my little materialistic bubble and forever be isolated from the, the very one that created me. And we need to know this, that if God knocks once and we close that door, uh, God is not forced to knock again. Uh, if he chooses not to, that's his privilege. And if he chooses not to, we're locked forever in a doomed existence. There's no way to come to him without his help. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father unless the Father draw him. Can't find God without his help. That's why it's important not to resist God or his voice when it comes to us. A young man asked me a few weeks ago, if God is spirit, then how could God walk with Adam? And uh, here was Adam walking in the garden, and somehow God walked with Adam. And I'm not sure if he was trying to be smart or if it was an honest question, but it did make me think a little bit, how would it happen that God could walk with Adam? In what form did he do it? Did he take on a physical shape? Did he come as a disembodied presence? Was it a voice? How did he do it? I'm sure God figured that out, but I'd like to turn that question around tonight and make it more difficult still. How can a man walk with God? Now we know God is who he was. We talked about him last night. And man is physical and God is spirit. And man is foolish and God is wise. Man is an intellectual dwarf whose wisest moments are still more foolish than the foolishness of God, if God has a foolishness. How is it possible to walk with God? I'd like to invite you tonight to Psalm 24. In this psalm, these first six verses, we have an invitation, we have a requirement, we have an outcome. I'd like to talk about these a bit this evening. I'm going to read the first six verses of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? 
or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Now this first verses could have been used last night, right in with God's creation. The earth is abundant. Uh, God's whole creation is designed to meet the needs of his creatures. And it's amazing to see how God created certain things to supply other things, and they're interdependent on each other. And it's full of fruit, it's full of grain, it's full of everything that we could need to exist and exist cheerfully. There's lots of blessing and beauty around us. The building blocks that people can take and use and invent things with and form things with, the minerals, the materials, the chemistry, and I believe that even medicine and technology and all these things are simply the results of God-given inquisitiveness and all the building blocks around that people can take and make and create with. And we love creation. I do. I assume you do. Uh, I sometimes think that the, person that have, the people that have the best jobs are the ones that work the closest to creation. Uh, most of our hobbies are very close to creation, if you have one. You might enjoy fishing or hunting or canoeing or gardening or bird watching. It's all related to observing things that God made. It's beautiful. But most believers, most people, most believers are content to stop in verse 1. Lip service to a creator. Thank you, Lord, for the beautiful day. What a wonderful world you've given me to enjoy. Did you know that materialism is one of the greatest deadening factors in the spiritual life? If you look at this parable of the soils, the one that gets my attention the most is the one in which the seed sprouted and grew and, and seemed to be doing just fine, but it was crowded out and overshadowed and, and drowned out by the thorns, which were the cares and demands and the other things of this life that choked the seed and it didn't bring forth fruit. Now, what are those things? When I say materialism, I'm not speaking a pursuit of money or love of money. It's simply looking at life as a, a set of materialistic and physical facts. It's looking at life and measuring it with a physical perspective. We're content to enjoy that. But here in verse 3, God is calling a special group of people. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who's going to go a step farther? Who will see beyond the gift and seek the giver? Who can enjoy creation but seek the creator at the same time? Who of us will know that life does not consist in abundance of stuff, and that the most enduring things come from a different realm altogether? Who will stand before God, and whom will God allow there? In verse 4, we have some entrance requirements. He speaks here of cleansed hands, and to me that speaks of past wrongs forgiven, past sins covered. To me it speaks of, of current actions sanctified. It's an ongoing holy life. It's a, a godly life. It speaks of a pure heart. David wrote, Thou desirest truth in the inward parts, which means all the way down here I think truth. I, I base my life on what I know to be true. Inner sincerity. Purity at a heart level. Humility. A right perspective of self. 
Honesty. God said in Isaiah 63.8, for He said, Surely there are My people, children that will not lie. See, these are things that are not allowed in the presence of God. He knows that these things are, are totally against His nature. And if we would stand in the presence of God and walk with God, we need to deal with these things. Now why bother? What benefit is there in, in living this way and going beyond what we see around us and seeking a God that hides Himself at the same time reveals Himself to those that they really want to know? Well, David said this, these are those that receive a blessing from the Lord. Righteousness. And this is the generation of people like that, those that know that material blessings aren't enough, that know that only God Himself can satisfy the deepest need, and we go seeking what most men can't see. And it's true that men are physical, and we need many physical things to live. It's just as true that man is spiritual and does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. Now what sets men apart like this? Who are the men that fit in this passage? Well, the choice to pursue the Creator, not just the creation. And throughout history, there's been special mention of a few people that have walked with God. One is uh, Enoch. In Genesis 5, verse 22, it says, And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And in Hebrews 11, it gives another detail of, of why it worked that way, what it was that allowed him to walk with God. And it says in Hebrews 11:5, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And in Genesis 6 9, it talks about Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. It might be difficult to get our minds around the fact that God walked with Adam, but here's a clue in how men can walk with God. There's a clue about these men. What about Enoch? When God looked at Enoch, God said of Enoch, He pleased God. What that means to me is simply that when he looked at Enoch going about his work and his business, God was happy with what he saw. When he saw Enoch living with his family, in his quiet time, in his relationship with his neighbors, what Enoch did made God happy. And God said, he pleases me. I like what I see in Enoch. What about Noah? It just says he was a just and perfect man in all his generations. When God looked at Noah and compared him with the rest of society, there was a very distinct difference between the two. A very distinct lifestyle, distinct expression, different way of looking at things, different values. And Noah walked with God because God was pleased with Noah. I'd like us to understand this tonight, that whenever God and men walk together, it's always at God's discretion. And the ongoing question of our life needs to be this. Is God pleased to walk with me? It's not so much me deciding, yes, I'm going to go walk with God today. It's, it's God saying, can I walk with this person? This testimony we saw of Noah and Enoch, it was God's testimony. And that's my prayer, that we might be counted among those who rise above the mediocre and we could be discontent with any testimony less than this. That this man walked with God, knew what it was to walk with the Lord.
The message tonight is simply this, if you would walk with God. And there's three things I'd like to point out specifically. And I'm sure these three things could form messages in themselves. But three things that I think that if we're serious about walking with God, we need to, uh, we need to pay attention to. Three things that dictate whether God is pleased to walk with me or not. And if we're feeling dry or isolated or, or discouraged or disconnected, it'd be well to meditate on these things because if it's true that my life is not as close to God as it should be, that can sometimes explain my need for revival. And these things count when we think about this, this matter. John 14, verse 23 says this, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. What I see in this verse is simple. Whenever God sees a heart that loves him, he's attracted to that life like a magnet to iron. It's just a natural drawing towards, because here's a heart that loves God. And the promise is real that wherever God finds a heart that loves the Lord, that's the, that's the environment in which God feels welcome. And he comes and dwells there. No one walks with God without loving God first. You know the first commandment, very, very simple. I shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. If you look at the Ten Commandments, you could easily divide them in two sides. The first four deal with how men relate to God, and the next six deal with how men relate to other men. And when God said, Jesus said here, these first two commandments, loving God and loving our neighbor, on these two depend all the law and the commandments. This is the sum. And so the first one is the sum of the first four. How we relate to God. And if we're honest, we probably don't love God as we ought. And sometimes I think about it when we sing this song, My Jesus, I Love Thee. And sometimes I'm convicted of how little I love God. And sometimes I'm ashamed of mine. Sometimes I wonder I ought to be quiet and let other people sing. But our love for God is, is sometimes intangible. It's hard to define it. But even if it's intangible, it's not that hard to measure because there's some very specific things that help us understand the level of our love for Him. It's measured by our choices. We're faced with a choice between what's good for me and what's good for Him. What's good for my pleasure, what's good for the kingdom. Uh, those choices help, help us understand it. It's measured by priorities. It's measured by obedience. Over and over, Jesus says, if any man love me, he'll keep my commandments. And how quickly I obey and how long I argue is a good indicator of how much I love the Lord. I believe love, loving God, is an expression of monotheism. The first, uh, the first commandment has to do with idolatry. And Israel's besetting sin was idolatry for many, many years. And true love is the opposite of idolatry. Their problem was bowing to other deities, bowing to visible things and giving obeisance and devotion to something that was not God. And loving God with all the heart is opposite of that. If you could picture Israel at the height of their obedience, their best moments, they served one God, and they could pass other shrines and see other altars and walk right past without even stopping to look. Their heart knew where it stood. They knew where the devotion lay. A single confidence. They had no confidence at all. 
in the promises and benefits of other religions. They knew that their hope depended in the Lord God, nothing else. One allegiance. They didn't go joining pagans for personal benefit. They didn't go making obeisance or reverence at other altars. But when Israel lost its singleness of heart, that's when it began to fall into this pattern of idolatry. And I think often when Israel fell into idolatry, it did not mean that they stopped worshiping God. Often their idolatry was simply a mixed devotion. They were compelled to go where other people went, worship where other people worshiped, give obeisance where other people did it, and then go on to worship God also. Often their religion was like that. And I believe that the sum of the first commandment is single-minded, exclusive devotion to the Lord Jesus. And don't think that our devotion is not tested today. We don't have Buddhas and other things standing around that we have to ignore. It's not quite like that. There's many idols, many shrines. There's many places on which you may lay your mind, heart, soul, emotions, strength. There's many other places we can give that. There are people that know much more about a favorite team than they know about their Bible. There are many who would spend more in entrance fees to games and movies and things around them than they would in the offering on Sunday morning. There are people who are much more excited about the stock market than a prayer meeting Wednesday evening. Uh, those are real tests. And it's easy for us to stop at other shrines, other altars, and just look in a while and gaze a while and admire and, and then move on to worship our God. Jesus asked Peter a very personal question. Peter had often failed. He had thrice denied the Lord. But he said, do you love me more than these? And here were the... Here was the ship, and here were the nets, and the fish in the lake. And here were the other disciples. And he had said, if everybody else denies you, I won't. And there, here they were. And he said, do you love me more than these? And that question deserves an answer from us. Do we love him, and how? You remember the young Anabaptist that saw the priest coming out of the temple with the host and leading this procession of the communion, the, the procession, and he struck the bread out of the priest's hand and said, how dare you worship a piece of bread? And he lost his life for it. Do you love him and how? Or the widow that put her last two cents in the offering. Do you love him and how? And throughout history, there's many stories of extravagant love, love that costs something. And this is one thing that marks those that walk with God, people that love the Lord at a cost to themselves. The second requirement to walk with God, I find in Amos 3, verse 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Now, if you're going to Richmond tomorrow, and I'm going to Floyd County, it's impossible that we would travel together. It's because you're going that way and I'm going the other way. It's not going to work. If you want to eat at Shoney's and I'd rather eat at Cracker Barrel, it's going to be impossible to eat together because we're going in different directions. And that's how we walk with God with agreeing with God. I'd like to tell you this this evening, that if you ever have a an argument with God, it's going to be impossible to make Him agree with you. Uh, the only way to settle the argument is to give in to Him. Until we give in to Him, we're walking by ourselves. It's impossible to go the same direction unless we're agreeing on, on what life is all about and how it's going to work.
There's different ways we could look at this point. But we can't agree with God unless we love what God loves. And unless I love what God loves, we can't walk together. There's, scripture is clear on this point. That the things that God loves the most are things that reflect his character the most. Malachi 2.6, talking about the priest. The law of truth was in his mouth and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did turn many away from iniquity. He walked with me. How? Well, in truth, because God is truth. And God hates anything that's false. That's what we need to remember when we do our taxes and when we do our business. God creates peace. And God loves peace. And God loves peacemakers. We need to remember that when we have a choice between getting our way or, or letting peace reign. God loves equity and fairness. God is no respecter of persons. We need to remember that when a hobo comes to church or somebody that doesn't quite meet our expectations. Psalm 11, verse 7 says, For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. See, God is righteous. And he loves to see things in our lives that reflect his righteousness. The acts of mercy. He loves to see us choose to forgive instead of exacting justice. Forgiveness of wrong and fair treatment. Even upright themes. Things that reflect his values. Even spiritual music. Godly expression. See, men that walk with God learn to love what God loves. And it, it goes to say, it goes without saying that in order to do that, we also have to hate what God hates. That's part of walking together. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's an awful thing to claim to walk with God and justify the things that he hates the most. And that's a mark of our society, by the way. There's a tremendous blurring of lines, erasing of, of limits. Just reading some posts, some comments today about spiritual things that about make you shake your head. Uh, blurring of moral lines and calling darkness light and calling light darkness and calling things by things other than their rightful names. And I believe that since society is so affected, I believe our churches have become affected. You see, we're so used to seeing the darkness that we're pretty all right with twilight. And it's almost comfortable to live in a mediocre situation because of the society around us. In Proverbs 6, I guess I should read those briefly, a list of things there that God hates as good for us to think about. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. These things make the list of seven. This is not an exclusive list, but these are seven things that God hates. The proud look deserves a message to itself. A lying tongue, try to find me a movie without one. Hands that shed innocent blood, do you agree with that? Personally go out and kill someone. 
What about the tongue that destroys an innocent reputation? Or what about anger that hurts innocent children? Or indifference that that crushes a dependent wife? These are things that God also hates, if you want to be fair with him. God hates a heart that imagines evil. It says so here. Your mind, my mind, is like a movie screen. We can play on there those things, and we're often the hero in our movies. We often think of ourselves as an avenger, as the vindicated, as the whatever. You, you, you know what that's all about. But the content of our heart determines a lot about whether God walks with us or not, how willing we are to deal with that. Do we agree with God? We could take that on in many directions. But those who walk with God agree with God. Uh, there's no other way to do it. There's one more area that I think we need to mention tonight. This comes out of Micah 6, verse 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what do the Lord require of thee but to do justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? And he that would walk with God must do it humbly or not do it at all because this is such a, a basic requirement of those that seek to walk with God. When God looks at our life and wants to determine whether or not this is a person with whom I may walk, well, he, he can walk. He looks at our attitudes toward ourselves and toward other people and uses that to help determine whether or not he can walk with this person. See, we can be imperfect in love, and we all are, and God keeps loving. And we can be imperfect in righteousness, and we can make mistakes, and God keeps working with us and keeps proving us and and convicting us. But I am too large, and when God is too small, that, that affects the relationship in such a way that we can't walk together like we should. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. I'd like you to or think about this a minute. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now, this is given in brotherhood context. First of all, it says, you younger ones, Submit yourselves to the older ones. We older ones like that. And then it says, all of you be subject one to another. That's how the body of Christ works. There's no superiority there, even with age, in uh, withholding respect one from another. And I believe in a normal congregational setting, in a godly church, it's entirely inconsistent to think that I can resist the brotherhood and submit to God at the same time. Because I believe that when God looks at our congregational relationships, he often measures our submission to him through our interaction one with another. Why is it so easy to say, yes, I love the Lord and I can submit to him, but I don't want to hear what you have to say to my life. These things go hand in hand. I believe as God looks on, he observes a quality in our spirit and in our heart toward one another. It makes a big difference whether he can walk with us the way he wants to. Some of the people that walk the closest with God are those that had to submit to the most difficult people around them. Note two things here in this verse. Two conditions of the heart. First of all, this one. He says, when he sees a heart of pride, he resists it. He stands against it. I don't believe this is passive. I believe this is an active, opposing, 
to a person like this. It's like walking upstream in a river. It's like standing in a wind tunnel. There's an active opposition from God towards us. If you can imagine a person, a religious person, but a proud person, he kneels to pray for his family. And what's God doing? He's resisting him. He comes to church and seeks the blessing of God in his life. And God resists him there. And every step God is holding him back because of his heart. Then there's a humble heart. If grace, is, if grace is the divine influence upon our heart, and if grace is, is all the, the resources of God on our behalf, and if here it says he gives grace to the humble, that's a beautiful verse, beautiful thought. Somebody said this, that, that grace is sort of like water from heaven. Just like water as it runs, seeks low places and fills the deepest places. It leaves these high things untouched. Somebody said in God's dealings, it's, it's not the hungry seeking the bread, it's the bread seeking the hungry. It's not the, the thirsty seeking water, it's the, the water seeking the thirsty. It's the grace that seeks the humble. And something in the heart of God just cannot resist a humble person. He wants to do something. He wants to be there. He wants to bless. And He pours out His grace on these things. But the higher we get, the more untouchable we are by grace. The more difficult it is for God to work in us. Now pride and humility are not questions of expression as much as they are conditions of the heart. We tend to assume that we're not proud people. We've trained pride out of ourselves a long time ago. We've, we've taught ourselves how to not be proud. We've gotten rid of fancy houses and red cars and fancy hairdos and all these things. That The problem is that pride lives in the heart, not in the car. It's in the heart, not in the hair. And uh, pride can res reside in, in all sorts of people. It can be in the heart of a middle-aged farmer. It can be in the heart of a, a young teenager. It doesn't matter. It might be a different expression, but it's the same issue. When I think of pride, I think of high-mindedness. Scripture talks about that. I think of Lucifer. Lucifer saying, five times, I will be like God. I will ascend to the highest. I will be this and this. It's a constant comparing one with another. It's a constant desire for something higher and better and bigger than what I am. It's a jostling for position. It's arranging people like rungs on a ladder. We look at other people and think, well, Brother Dan, you know, he's a doctor and he's a spiritual person. I know he's up here somewhere, but Brother so-and-so, I know that they've got a lot to learn their way down there and, and I'm somewhere in the middle and I think I'm going to uh, head on up this ladder. Uh, it's aspiring for recognition. It's, it's hurt feelings when, when this doesn't happen. Pride is like climbing a ladder. And we can't walk with God on a ladder. It doesn't work that way. We, we people, we're, we're capable of using anything for a pedestal. Anything that sets me apart from anyone else. Uh, we think that our looks do it, our achievements do it, our background does it, our experience does it. And what I really think humility is, is forgetting about ourselves anyway. It doesn't really matter. That's sort of the heart of humility. As we serve the Lord and serve other people, 
we just stop mattering as much. Pride is hypocrisy, pretense. If you look in Daniel chapter 2, he has this vision that he can't remember. So Daniel explains this vision to Nebuchadnezzar and, and here's this head of gold and, and Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, you're this head of gold. You can imagine what that would do to a person that's proud already. If someone would tell him, you're the king, you're the best, no one else after you is going to reach your stature. Well, the next chapter, we see an image of gold. 90 feet high, set up out in the desert. And everybody around there is supposed to worship this image on pain of death when the music starts playing. Now, do you have any doubt in your mind whose image this was? Chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's this head of gold. Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar builds this huge statue in the desert. And when everybody bows down to worship, where's Nebuchadnezzar? I think he's probably sitting right there beside this image. That's a little bit what pride is. It's 90 feet of pretense set up that other people can admire. Now, pride does that for two reasons. One reason that pride produces a facade is simply shame of who I really am inside. If people would know who I really am, what I've really done, if people could see my heart, they would not like me anymore. Put up this face, put up this image out front. They can't see me. And pride produces this image so that people might, this is who I wish I was. This is like Nebuchadnezzar did. This is who I wish I was. I might receive honor from people. Ego produces an image. I think of Ananias and Sapphira when they came into uh, this little piece of property they sold and, and they had this problem. They loved money and they loved the praise of men. Two things that often don't go hand in hand. They, they've sometimes come at loggerheads with each other. And that's what happened here. Everyone was giving donations and giving their wealth. And here they had this property. They wanted to keep it, but they knew if they're going to fit in with this spiritual group, they're going to have to give some of it up. And they discussed how to have both. And Ananias walked in and set down his money. And it doesn't say that he said a word. He didn't open his mouth. But Peter was very discerning. He knew Ananias. And he knew this wasn't Ananias standing there. This was simply a, a 90-foot image set up for other people to admire. It wasn't true. And God brought image or, or judgment there because we can't walk with God with an image. Pride is a strong-willed spirit, independent spirit. See, pride would love to prove to everyone that I need nothing and I can make a way for myself. I don't need you. No, pride can suffer. Pride can give away wealth. Pride can serve other people. But it's very, very difficult for pride to say, I need you. I need your help. Pride is spiritual superiority. Jesus told that story in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the publican. And the Pharisee was in his corner showing off to God. God, I thank you that all these things have worked out for me. And praise the Lord that, that I don't do what other people do. And, and the publican, by himself in his corner, undone, beating his chest, saying, Lord, I have nothing. I am broken. I am, I am sinful. I am repentant. Please have mercy. I believe Satan loves a good Pharisee, and I believe he finds him sometimes. Because people that have religious pride, or pride in their religion, pride in their, their spirituality, 
These are people that own their own goodness and make sure everybody else knows it. These are people that think they deserve God's blessing and, and expect it. Turn God's grace into something that exalts themselves. Do you ever hear an I thank thee God attitude? I thank thee God that my family turned out better than their family and I thank thee God that I'm a better manager than so and so and I thank thee God that our congregation isn't like that church, poor church. It's a very poor way to walk with God with that kind of an attitude. Then what is humility? Isaiah 57, verse 15, it says, For thus saith the high and lofty one, we read this last night, that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. God lives in two places. We looked at one place last night. The expanses of eternity are his. That's his habitation. And the humble heart is the other one. What a contrast. Humility is simple honesty about my life's condition. And I believe this infinite God, this eternal God, can't resist it. He comes to it. He's drawn to it. He dwells in it. And if we find ourselves on a platform, it's time to come off of it. If we find ourselves standing on something to get closer to God, God hates when people stand on stacks of stuff that try to get closer to Him. He loves it much better when, like Moses in the desert, the shoes are taken off because even a quarter inch of leather is too high. We can simply say, Lord, this is who I am. If we live beside, behind a facade, it's time to take it off. Jesus said something very interesting to the Pharisees. He told them, the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom before you. He might have said that for different reasons. But I wonder if one reason was this. When he looked at these Pharisees and he looked at the publicans, one could not afford to tell the truth about themselves and the other was quite okay with being honest with who they were. Uh, I was in Guatemala one time, young person, about 19, 20 years old, and often go out and pass out tracks on the street. And so I went out by myself one time, standing on this crosswalk over this street there and passing out tracks. And all of a sudden I noticed this lady there and she was trying to get my attention and I soon learned that this was a prostitute and being a young Virginia country boy, I really hadn't dealt with such things before. And she wanted my attention, and I kept passing out tracks trying to ignore this person. And she finally looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, I'm a wicked woman, am I not? And she just turned and walked away. And she could afford to be honest. I know who I am. There's some people that can't afford to be that honest. There's some people that cost them too much to be that honest. See, beautiful things happen when images come down. Think about the time in Israel when Israel was under the, the rule of the Midianites. Before God gave them victory, he directed Gideon to go pull down his dad's altars and images and things. What happened after those images came down? God was able to turn that curse into a blessing and get those people out of there, free them from that enslavement. 
When Baal worship was destroyed on Mount Carmel, the rains came back. And beautiful things can happen in our life. If we are dry and we are empty and we are isolated, and we're not walking with God and experiencing that blessing, beautiful things happen when these things come down in our life. The first step to restoring a relationship with God is simply, often anyway, conquering the pride that seals our lips. I had a young man in my living room one time that was very nervous. He came in and sat down and said, I really want to talk to you about something. And he said, remember those extortion threats that happened a number of years ago? I just need to confess that I was the one that did it. And he was in the church at that time. and He had never told anyone, and, and he confessed it. It was just something that he was living behind that he came down. A man that stood in church one time, an elderly man, and said, with tears, I've been enslaved to pornography for years. And a facade came off, and people could see him for who he was, and forgive him for it, and walk together with him afterwards. And how God walked with Adam, I'm still not sure, but how man can walk with God, I believe is outlined pretty clearly in Scripture for those that choose to know it. Love him with all your heart. Do you do it? Agree with him. Do you agree? Walk humbly with him. Is that how you walk? Spend time with him. Prioritize our relationship with him. Micah 4 says something interesting. Micah 4 verse 5 says, For all people will walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Beautiful verse. Almost everyone identifies himself with something. You can see it on their bumper stickers. You can see it on their bedroom walls. You can see it uh, on their t-shirts. Things they identify with. Things they pertain to. What evidence is there that you walk with God? What evidence is there that, that He walks with you? Now walking with God is not always easy. Sometimes He lets us walk in hard places. Difficult places. Uh, sometimes we don't understand where He's going. But walking with God is a secret to a life of blessings. secret to a life of surprises and good things. And walking with God is the only way we're ever going to enter an eternal life. Because that's where he's going. That's where he is. He's the beginning and the end. He's the way and the truth. And the only way to get there is walking in him and with him. Let's pray. With your heads bowed for a moment, I would like to ask this question. How is it with you and God in these points? Uh, Have your attitudes and your actions proven that you walk with God and God with you? Or have these things been a factor to distance you from a close relationship with Him? And God loves you and God created you for this close relationship. And if you have recognized in your life something very specific that has kept you at odds with Him and kept you apart from Him and kept you dry and unrevived, And you're willing to just do business tonight with God. Just invite you to stand to your feet where you are a moment in recognition of that. Something very personal between you and the Lord, but I ask you to respond to his, his voice tonight. Lord, what a wonderful thing that 
the God of eternity and the God of creation would humble himself to walk with us. Lord, help. How unrighteous we would be if we would keep you out of, of our life and keep you distant from our life. Help us, Lord, to open ourselves fully. We want to enjoy a close relationship because that's where blessing comes from. That's where deep joy comes from. Help us to honor you and give in and yield our life to you. Bless this congregation, those who responded. Give them much joy as they deal with issues in their life and help them to come into a new and deeper relationship with the Lord. Bless them with richness and revival in their heart. Bless each one here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.